0: The next lecture in this series is the 1988 Malkin Lecture, which will be on Monday, the 12th of December, with Roger Stoddard, curator of rare books at the Harvard College Library, speaking on William Gowans, a contemporary of Sabin and another 19th century bibliographical worthy that the Malkin Lecture seems particularly adept in finding. The 1987 Malkin Lecture, Sorry, the 1988 Malkin, excuse me, try again. The 1987 Malkin Lecture is in the press. That's Marjorie Wins, and we should have copies of the 87 Lecture, which is being printed at Steinauer for distribution on the occasion of the 1988 Lecture. All those in attendance will be given a copy. And, of course, the friends will receive them by mail as well. This evening... We see the beginning of our speaker's long threading his way up and down and throughout the countryside talking about English country house libraries, but you heard him first. Christopher Ridgway is librarian of Castle Howard and it's a great pleasure to welcome him here tonight. Thank you. Good evening.
1: If I could have the lights off, please. Castle Howard lies in the county of North Yorkshire, 15 miles northeast of the city of York. The approach to this, one of England's grandest stately homes, is first signalled by this monument. The road then follows a tree-lined avenue in the rolling Howardian Hills, that runs through various mock fortifications until eventually the house itself is reached. The house has been home to the Howard family since the time it was built from 1699. And the history of the family is as varied and checkered as one might expect it to be, encompassing individuals who are artists, politicians, writers, priests, and even traitors. In tracing the narrative of any family, It is tempting to push as far back into history as possible, and there are many branches of the Howard family in England. But Today I shall be talking about only the Castle Howard branch, and even then I shall only be focusing upon a handful of members of the family over the generations, principally these nine individuals. We begin in the year 1660. 1660 saw the restoration of the monarchy in England with Charles II, after 20 years of civil war and political confusion. The Restoration promised great things, especially for those who had adhered to the Royalist cause during the Civil War and Cromwell's parliamentary interregnum. Swinging adeptly between Royalist and Parliamentary camps, Charles Howard had conducted himself shrewdly during these years. He was apt to go forward and backward in public affairs as one contemporary remarked. He was one of only two peers created in Cromwell's time, taking the title Viscount Morpeth in 1657. At the Restoration in 1660, he was to suffer for this, and he was imprisoned for a short while. However, his political flexibility finally paid off, for within a year of the new reign, Howard was raised to the aristocracy and created First Earl of Carlisle, This title was to remain in the Howard family at Castle Howard until 1921, when there was a great division of the family estates. In addition to his title, there was a series of lucrative and prestigious governmental posts. But there was as yet no really grand home for the new-made Earl of Carlisle. When away from London, the first Earl lived at Hendersdelf Castle in Yorkshire, which eventually was demolished in 1699 to make way for Castle Howard. There was no shortage of wealth in the family from large tracts of land all over the north of England, which included the odd castle here and there. But there was no country seat of the opulence and grandeur really befitting a serious nobleman in the post-Restoration years. It was not until the very end of the century that the Howard family began to think of building one. By 1699, William III had been on the throne since 1688, when the glorious revolution of the Whigs had forced James II into exile for his absolutist and Catholic tendencies. Under William and Mary, a new generation of Howards prospered, particularly the young Charles Howard, 3rd Earl of Carlisle. He was made gentleman of the king's bedchamber, 1st Lord of the Treasury, and Deputy Earl Marshal of England. And yet, in spite of his success at the court of William III, there was still no palace in Yorkshire to befit his status. In the 1690s, late on, Third Earl seems to have wearied of public life and retired to his Yorkshire estates. Once there, however, he was faced with a problem. Henderskelf Castle had been destroyed by fire in 1693, and although there was another medieval castle in the family called Nowarth Castle further north, close to the Scottish border, it was felt to be too remote. There seemed no option to begin building a new home in Yorkshire. In 1699, the Third Earl made the extraordinary decision to choose for his architect, the dramatist John Vanbrugh, who had never built anything in his life. Within 20 years as the work progressed, this grand house with its massive gardens full of temples and lakes began to take shape, and engravings of its design and setting appeared in one of the most important architectural books of the time. This was Colin Campbell's illustrated Vitruvius Britannicus, an ambitious survey of English buildings throughout the land. Campbell, a thrusting and unknown Scottish architect, had been taken up by the young Lord Burlington, then aged only 21, who was to develop into the most influential patron of artists, composers, poets, and Palladian architects over the next 20 to 30 years. In his introduction, Campbell champions the idea of antique simplicity in architecture and singles out the 16th century Italian architect Andrea Palladio for special praise. Campbell also extols the work of a number of past and present British architects, including Inigo Jones, Sir Christopher Wren, William Talman, Nicholas Hawksmore, and of course Sir John Vanbrugh. The publication of Vitruvius Britannicus in 1715 coincided with completion of the main block and east wing of Castle Hard. Numerous plans, drawings, and designs had, of course, passed forward and back between the Third Earl and Vanbrugh, but from the appearance of Vitruvius Britannicus, the house could be said to exist at large in the public imagination for the first time. In all, Campbell included seven engravings of Castle Hard. Some showed the general plan, and some were double plates, showing the elevation, such as this one of the north front. Campbell's original two-volume project was subsequently expanded to include a third folio volume issued in 1725, and in this there appeared the well-known bird's-eye view of Castle Hard with the grounds around the house. This striking ensemble, finally executed by the Dutch engraver Henry Hilsberg, stunned contemporaries and revealed the magnificence of the building, which was costing the third earl over one-third of his annual income. Among the many subscribers to the 1715 Vitruvius Britannicus were two of the learned and ingenious gentlemen Campbell had applauded in his introduction, Sir John Vanbrugh and Nicholas Hawksmoor. These two, respectively, controller and clerk of His Majesty's works. In addition to these two, it is, of course, no surprise to find amongst the many subscribing noblemen the third earl, who had put himself down for two sets. In fact, every nobleman subscribed whose house was depicted. These included the Duke of Marlborough, whose house, Blenheim Palace, was built by Vanbrugh, and the Duke of Montague, whose home, Balton House, had recently been restyled in the French manner, to name just two. But architectural priorities aside, there is little doubt that in marketing terms Vitruvius Britannicus was a success, running to a second edition within ten years. By the time of the appearance of the third volume in 1725, the subscription list had grown from an initial total of 303 persons to over 500. Copies of Vitruvius Britannicus would have found their way into virtually every big house in England in addition to circulating widely among the architectural fraternity. The book has come to be seen mistakenly as purely a piece of Palladian propagandizing, principally on account of Campbell's own designs which were included, but also because it competed with a publication of Palladio's works in English, edited by Giacomo Leone and issued also in 1715. The fact remains, however, that the buildings in Vitruvius Britannicus were mainly Baroque, and in comparison to the growing vogue for Palladio, relatively dated in 1715. Well, I have begun by introducing Castle Howard through a book. For many in the 18th century, the illustrations, such as these in Vitruvius Britannicus, would have afforded their first introduction to Castle Howard. Perhaps afterwards, if they were intrepid enough, they would have travelled to Yorkshire to have visited the house. There were indeed a handful of such early voyagers, among them the Earl of Oxford in 1725, the London judge John Tracy Atkins in 1732, whose North Country tour diary, Ita Boreale, is now at the Mellon Centre in Yale, and much later in the century, in 1772, that unique English wit, author, and eccentric, Horace Walpole. Few of today's visitors are likely have to have prepared themselves through an inspection of Vitruvius Britannicus, but it is surprising how great is the number of people who comprehend the house primarily in terms of a book. Were he alive today, the third Earl would no doubt be a little puzzled at the sort of book many have in mind when they arrive. For them, Castle Hard is not simply a book, it is the book. The book about these people. Indeed, we can be even more precise. Castle Hard is the film of the book by the famous English author chronicling the fortunes of the English aristocratic family. Well, nobody at Castle Hard would deny the power of this image and this particular ethos, but many of us who are associated with the house hold a different idea or image as to Castle Hard and its meaning, very far removed from Brideshead, the Marchmain family, and Evelyn Waugh. As librarian, I'm involved with the collection in ways that bear upon the history, identity, and narrative of Castle Had. My principal tasks are to catalogue and research the collection and to take care of the books. But there are times when I would willingly remove one particular book from the collection and emancipate the house from a very specific image. Well, with this piece of subversive cataloguing over and done with, it's time to return to all the other books at the house. The first substantial record of a collection of books at Castle Hard predates the actual beginning of Vanbrugh's palatial building by one year. 1698, the third Earl had a catalogue drawn up of his books in his London home, Carlisle House, in Soho Square. This is a small volume bound in reverse calf. Inside is a neatly handwritten alphabetical list of books, and considerable care has been taken by the anonymous compiler to create a shelf mark system which explains at the front of the catalogue. By checking against the 1698 catalogue, it can be confirmed that a good many books published in this period were purchased then and still remain in the house. Here, for example, is a copy of Thomas Stanley's The History of Philosophy. The importance of this book lies in its being one of the earliest attempts at a history of philosophy. Stanley was both a poet and a classicist. Between 1655 and 1662, he added a further three volumes to his work. His history of philosophy cannot really be described as a critique of philosophy. It is primarily a biographical survey of the early Greek philosophers. The work remained, however, a standard authority for a long while. And was republished three more times in the next 80 years. The front of the book shows two sets of shelf marks. The cancelled pencil entry is from the 1698 London catalogue, and the inked entry beneath is from the second manuscript catalogue of 1715, when the books had been transferred from London to the newly built Castle Howard. Sadly, this later catalogue is not as thorough as the earlier one and is much less informative than its predecessor. Returning to Stanley's title page, History of Philosophy, we can begin to trace the provenance of this book, learning how the third earl had in fact inherited the volume from his grandfather, the first earl. The first earl's signature at the top here confirms this, as does his device underneath of a pair of backed C's, denoting Charles Carlyle. Interestingly, um, a pair of backed C's was Charles II's own personal cipher as well, this offers an interesting comment on the, third, on the first earl's um, pretensions at this time. But uh, the back piece here is the first recorded use of a motif that is repeated architecturally over successive generations at Castle Howard. The account books for this period indicate that the third earl paid two pounds for the 1698 catalogue to be compiled. The identity of this early cataloguer remains unknown but his duties included some secretarial work and letter writing in addition to recording the 750 or so books listed in the catalogue. We do know where the Third Earl obtained some of his books. He purchased a number from the bookseller John Harding, who owned a shop in St. Martins Lane in London. In April 1698, the Earl's account books show he paid Harding's bill of £27.17. and shillings, And again, in 1702, he paid another bill of £9.04. Unfortunately, there are no itemized bills showing which books exactly were bought, nor how many were purchased for this sum. But it is worth bearing in mind that Vitruvius Britannicus, obviously sumptuous book, was to cost between three and four guineas when it was first announced in 1715. During this period, however, in 1698, the Third Earl also had five books for his wife, Lady Carlyle, bound in green vellum and gilt, and this cost him another two pounds. The binder remains unknown, alas, nor is there any record of which books were sent to be bound. Signatures, devices, handwriting, book plates, binders' labels, all these are food and drink to any librarian, especially in the absence of archival materials such as inventories, wills, or itemized bills, which would more clearly detail the evolution of a library. When cataloguing and researching a private library, one must always maintain a dual perspective. The books themselves must be examined and understood in terms of their intellectual content, and at the same time, their provenance and private significances should be comprehended. Thus it is that at any stage in the development of the Castle Howard Library, signatures and so on are so enormously revealing and helpful. And While we know that the Third Earl was purchasing books for himself, and therefore that the beginnings of the Castle Howard Library date from these closing years of the 17th century. It must also be said that he inherited a great number from two important and distinct branches of the family. A large and very valuable collection of both books and manuscripts came into the family from the third Earl's great-great-grandfather, Lord William Howard, who had lived at Nowth Castle in Cumbria. Lord William, who died in 1640, was a man of considerable learning, and among his books which passed down into the family was an incredibly rare copy of Caxton's printing of Ralph Higdon's Polychronicon. This was one of the earliest works to be printed by Caxton in 1482, and only 40 copies are known to exist. Lord William also owned a number of other early printed books, and in many ways he might justifiably be described as the founder of the family library. But regrettably, very few of his books remain today. Another small but precious collection of books came to the Third Earl via his uncle by marriage, Sir John Fenwick. Now Fenwick was the black sheep of the family, for during the 1690s he was involved in one of a number of plots to assassinate William III. Fenwick bore a grudge from a time when he had been severely and publicly reprimanded by the King. But it also seems pretty clear that Fenwick was something of a troublemaker. While in 1695 he was arrested trying to flee the country, Late in 1696, he was attainted, and in January 1697, perhaps inevitably, he lost his head. Well, with a quite remarkable speed, Fenwick's books, which can be identified by his father's signature, William Fenwick, were absorbed into the Third Earl's library. They rapidly made their way into the 1698 catalogue barely a year after Fenwick's execution. And this was in spite of the fact that Fenwick's widow, Lady Mary, who was the third earl's aunt, did not herself die until 1708. What the third earl privately thought about his treasonable uncle, we don't know, but he certainly made sure he obtained a copy of the published account of the trial, which appeared in 1698, entitled The Proceedings Against Sir John Fenwick Upon a Bill of Attainder for High Treason. Today this book, although not strictly belonging to the Fenwick Library, sits alongside the Fenwick Collection, a privileged and posthumous accession. Well, these closing years of the 17th century witness an enormous coming together in the Howard family as wealth, ideas, and energies coalesce and result in the building of Castle Howard as well as the establishing of the nuclei of various collections in the house. The archives indicate that the Third Earl was beginning to collect paintings, furniture, and tapestries during this period but these were acquired less with a view to collecting per se than with the aim of furnishing his newly built house. It was not until later in the 18th and early 19th centuries with the 4th and 5th earls respectively that sculpture and paintings were particularly bought with the intention of building up a collection. If I, fear, if I appear to be focusing disproportionately on this early stage of the library, it is because it is so tremendously important as a foundation upon which the rest of the collection was to grow in fits and starts over the next 200 years. It is also one of the best documented periods about the library, especially with the two manuscript catalogues already mentioned. And furthermore, this is a period when a discernible relationship between a number of books in terms of their subject matter and events in the history of the family and the building itself is excitingly plausible. The emphasis of the collection at this time is upon theology, heraldry and genealogy, and as you might expect, architecture. The Third Earl's reading in Genealogy and Heraldry reveals a keen interest in the notions of rank, order, and hierarchy. He even began a short treatise entitled A Book of Coats and Crests. And Carlyle owned a number of important works in this field, including a copy of Sir William Dugdale's the Baronage of England. As the full title indicates, an historical account of the lives and most memorable actions of our English nobility, this work was distinguished by its scale as well as its breadth of reference. Dugdale was a scrupulous scholar, regularly citing his authorities in the margin, and he was particularly praised for not filling his family histories with gossip and legends. Not surprisingly, in the second volume of the Baronage, is a short entry on the newly created Earls of Carlisle. The third earl also owned a copy of The Institutions, Laws and Ceremonies of the Most Noble Order of the Garter by Elias Ashmole, after whom the famous Ashmolean Museum in Oxford is named. Ashmole was in fact Dugdale's son-in-law, and he also exhibited a thoroughness in his work that has led one recent commentator to remark of this work that it is, quote, One of those books which exhaust the subject of which they treat and leave scope only for supplements. In theology, the Third Earl was also widely read. Nearly a quarter of the books in the 1698 catalogue were of theological or philosophical bearing. On the evidence of these titles alone, one can see that the Third Earl was anything but narrow-minded regarding religion particular note amongst his books are several works by the 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes, including a first edition of Leviathan, that controversial volume in which Hobbes outlined his ideas on the relationship between individual liberty and sovereign power, and for which he was accused of being both an atheist and a defender of Cromwell. But ever open-minded, the Third Earl also possessed a copy of the Earl of Clarendon's reply, Attacking Hobbes, entitled a brief view and survey of the dangerous and pernicious errors to church and state in Mr. Hobbes' book, in which Clarendon attacked Hobbes for his apparent atheism and charged him, curiously with, amongst other things, lack of learning and insufficient reading. Well, lack of erudition is something the third earl cannot be accused of, Later in his life, in 1718, he met up with an old boyhood acquaintance, Thomas Story, who had become a prominent member of the Quaker movement. Story visited Castle had a number of times, and both men conversed at length on religious topics. And Story lent the third earl a copy of Robert Barclay's important early Quaker treatise, an apology to the true Christian divinity, as the same is held forth and preached by the people called in scorn Quakers. This is the title page of the fifth edition of 1703, which does, in fact, uh, have Barclay's own cipher. And this is still in the collection. story never received the book back. The third Earl was also reading such strongly Anglican works as Richard Alstree's The Causes of the Decay of Christian Piety. This is a first edition of 1667, which the third Earl inherited from his father and contains the marvellous title page engraving of The Burning Ship, It's unclear whether these flames are consuming the ship of faith or whether they signify the fires of judgment, but the engraving is emblematic in a more topical sense. In England in the 1660s, fire had more than just spiritual associations. There was the Great Fire of London in 1666, and in June 1667, there was the humiliating attack by the Dutch Navy up the River Medway, severely damaging the English fleet. From this smattering of titles we must ask what then did all this reading on the part of the third earl add up to the range of material rationalist anglican polemic and quakerism all indicate a free-thinking heterodox theology on his part and this position can further be confirmed with the reading of his unpublished essay on god and his prophets written during the 1720s and which shows a strong debt to hobbes in arguing for the need for a relation between religion reason and social usefulness and a further indication of the third earl's attitudes can be found during the 1720s when he was corresponding with Nicholas Hawksmore over the designs for a mausoleum at Castle Hard which he planned to erect as a burial place for himself and his family in discussing the architectural style of the building both men were anxious to follow classical examples and Hawksmore suggested a design modelled on the tomb of Metella outside Rome The letters between these two men also included religious topics, confirming a rational approach to the idea of religion, which Hawkesmore described as combining architectonical method and good reason. And with the mention of the mausoleum, we return to the field of architecture, and specifically the relationship between books and building at Castle Howard. I want to conclude this survey of the beginnings of the collection with discussion of one or two books in this area. By the middle of the 18th century, the library contained a number of important architectural volumes, including William Kent's edition of The Designs of Inigo Jones, James Gibbs's A Book of Architecture, and perhaps most importantly, Lord Burlington's Fabrique Antique, a collection of Palladio's reconstructions of antique Roman buildings. While the list alone of these volumes, together with the many other architectural books at Castle Had, is impressive, there is perhaps no more eloquent testimony to the seriousness with which architecture was treated at Castle Had than the case of this rather ordinary volume, which contains no fine engraved plates at all. The volume is one of the account books for the building work done at Castle Howard between 1702 and 1715. As one might expect, it details various pieces of expenditure on masonry, carpentry, plaster work and so on. But what is more unusual about this volume is how it contains handwritten extracts from an important architectural volume of the time, and these signal a curious puzzle. Copied out are both the title page and some chapters from Giacomo Leone's The Architecture of Andrea Palladio in four books published in 1715. The chapters come from the second book and deal specifically with proportion and decorum in a nobleman's private home, together with the distribution and organization of the rooms in such a house. From the date of the account book and the publication of Leone's edition, it is clear that these passages were copied out sometime around 1715 which was when the apartments in the south front at Castle Howard were being built. Who exactly copied out these passages remains a mystery. Possibly it was the third earl's accountant, Neville Ridley, or perhaps his clerk of works, William Etty. But whoever the copyist was, he showed a strange lack of architectural understanding, or possibly not, as we shall see. Leone's edition of Palladio was the first major edition of his work in over 50 years in England was both comprehensive and with its large engraved plates, offered a high standard of illustration. Leone's Palladio, together with Campbell's Vitruvius Britannicus, were the two most important books of the early 18th century revival of Palladian architecture. It is hardly surprising, therefore, to find the third earl listed among the subscribers for Leone's volume. But this instance of the account book with its copied wisdom and authority of Palladio does not produce a straightforward correspondence between books and building. It reveals an intriguing discrepancy. Castle Howard is not a Palladian building. Begun in 1699 when the Vogue was for English Baroque, Castle Howard, and indeed Vanbrugh himself at that stage, cannot be said to embody Palladian principles, especially with regard to architectural proportion. Well, earlier I suggested that the illustrations in Vitruvius Britannicus, especially the bird's-eye view, allowed Castle Howard to exist as an edifice fully in the public mind. Although it was among a whole series of houses in the book, there was a sense in which the book presented this new building and established Castle Howard for the first time. But a good many of the houses depicted in Vitruvius Britannicus were mainly Baroque, and in 1715, on the eve of the revival of Palladianism in England, they would have appeared a little dated. Consequently, the passages from Leone in the account book, while on the one hand showing an awareness of the contemporary and the fashionable in the world of architectural publishing, on the other hand sound a note of dissent toward the pattern of building at Castle Howard. These copied-out passages must remain a conundrum, does the unknown copyist reveal an ignorance in architectural matters, confusing the Baroque with the Palladian? Or perhaps he is trying to attract attention by copying out some of the most up-to-date passages in architectural fashion? Or possibly he is registering some form of disagreement with an outmoded style of building at Castle Howard. Whatever the answer to these questions, the fact remains that this account book demonstrates a complex relationship between books and building. Nowadays, we tend to look upon early architectural books with plates as essentially ornamental and illustrative. It is easy to forget that they were once consulted differently and that they did influence design and construction. Someone felt strongly enough about these passages in Leone's Palladio to copy them out. But who saw those passages and what their reaction was must remain a mystery. During these years, the collection at Castle Hard was enlarging, as the 700 books in the 1698 catalogue swelled to over 1500. In the same way as the house itself was growing and taking shape in stone, so its interior was acquiring a real identity through its inhabitants and the collections assembled therein. Naturally, the library was part of this enormous process. We've begun to see how important architectural books were to the public conception of Castle Howard. We've also seen how the Third Earl's reading indicated much as to his character and tastes. And so we might conclude in the words of the English novelist Anthony Powell, who observes that books do furnish a room, or perhaps we should modify this to, books do establish a house. Before leaving the third earl, I want to offer one final example of how the relationship between books and building at Castle Howard is both complex and fertile. In the 1698 catalogue, there is recorded a copy of George Sandy's translation of Ovid's Metamorphosis. This was a tremendously popular and influential translation, as well as being very competent and dexterous in its handling of rhyme and meter, employing the heroic couplet. Aside from Sanders' poetic merits, this particular copy is interesting in an added number of ways. It is riddled with signatures showing how it passed down through the family and was clearly cherished by Edward Howard, 2nd Earl of Carlisle, as a young man. Of greater significance, however, is the fact that this was one of several editions of Ovid in the family. Together, the two early catalogues of 1698 and 1715 list a total of eight different editions of Ovid's works, revealing him to be the most collected author in the library. Granted that Ovid had always been something of a bestseller, but this concentration is unique in the collection. No other author at this time, contemporary or classical, is represented in such depth. Any one of these editions of Ovid might have been consulted by the Italian artist Giovanni Antonio Pellegrini when he began work at Castle Howard in 1709 on a commission to decorate the ceiling of the dome above the Great Hall. Pellegrini's painting depicts the story of the fall of Phaeton, and the principal classical source for this episode is Book Two of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Sanders' translation of it had been distinguished by a series of engravings at the front of each book. This is the engraving at the beginning of book two, with the fall of Phaeton depicted up here in the left-hand corner. Well, there was perhaps nothing intrinsically unusual in choosing this story, which the architectural historian Kerry Downs sees as imbued with political allegory. There was a Phaeton episode at Windsor Castle, dating from the 1670s, and also at Montague House and Chatsworth, dating from the 1690s. But where Pellegrini's painting is so distinctive is in its exploitation of space and height underneath a cupola, not of wood, but of masonry. The dome is some 70 feet high, and from here where the central episode is depicted, Pellegrini carries his designs down to the pendentives, the side walls, and the staircases, depicting the four elements, the continents, and Apollo with Midas and with the Muses. Pellegrini had finished work at Castle Howard by 1712, and three years later as Campbell was writing his introductory remarks to Castle Howard in Vitruvius Britannicus, he saw fit specifically to praise Pellegrini's masterpiece. It would perhaps be unwise to urge a connection between any specific edition of the Metamorphoses at Castle Howard and Pellegrini's own work, particularly in the absence of any conclusive evidence. However, the fact remains that there were more copies of Ovid at Castle Hath than any other author or work at this time, and that the central and most dramatic decorative feature inside the building is from the Metamorphoses. In a sense, we have come full circle from the Vitruvius Britannicus. In that volume, the house was part of the book. In this instance with Pellegrini's painting, a book is part of the house. If I have weighted this talk toward the beginnings of the library, it is because, as I have said, the period is one of the best documented regarding the books, particularly with the manuscript catalogues as well as the archival material relating to the construction of the house. Furthermore, the period is crucial because it sees the beginning of the collection proper, with the conjoining of Lord William Howard's library, Sir John Fenwick's library, and the third Earl's own books. Finally and not least of all, the years which witnessed the building of Castle Howard offer a number of interesting correspondences between buildings and books. The next significant phase in the development of the collection occurs in the time of this man, Frederick Howard, 5th Earl of Carlisle. The 5th Earl inherited the title in 1758. He began life as something of a rake, addicted to gambling and fashion, but in the 1770s he entered politics. And it is from this period that the two sole itemized booksellers' bills in existence at Castle Howard are found. The major bill from this period covers the eight months from December 1770 to July 1771 and itemizes over 100 titles. The bookseller was James Dodsley, the younger brother of the famous bookseller, publisher, poet, and dramatist Robert Dodsley. James had taken over the business on Robert's death in 1764 books on theology law the classics topography drama poetry history books in french and novels are all included in the purchases of this period of particular note is a copy of thomas hanmer's edition of shakespeare this was the second volume that sorry this was the sixth volume second edition published in 1771 hanmer's edition was certainly not the most distinguished 18th century edition of shakespeare and nor was it the only copy of Shakespeare at Castle Howard during this period. Among the other editions can be found copies of Dr. Johnson's edition of 1765 and Edward Capel's ten-volume edition of 1768. Hanmer's edition may not have been of great scholarly value, but it was sumptuously illustrated with engravings by Gravelo and making it an expensive set costing ten guineas. There are two points to make about the Fifth Earl's purchase of Hanmer's Shakespeare. First, it confirms a general trend during his lifetime for buying drama. This is not altogether surprising, since the 5th Earl was in fact something of a dramatist and a poet himself. But during these years, the holdings in drama at Castle Howard grow to cover all the principal English dramatists of the past, as well as collections of contemporary 18th century plays. The second point about this purchase of Hanma is how it reveals that the 5th Earl was buying contemporary works and editions. Further example of his interest in the very current can be seen with his purchase recorded in this bill of Dr. Johnson's pamphlet, Thoughts on the Late Transactions Respecting Falklands Islands, published in 1771. In this essay, Johnson discusses the conflicting claims of England and Spain to these bleak islands in the South Atlantic. In 1770, the Spanish had occupied the Falklands, but subsequent negotiations had resulted in Spain withdrawing from the islands. Johnson vigorously attacked those in England who had clamoured for war, and it might be said that his was a voice many in England would have preferred to have heard when history repeated itself in that bizarre conflict of 1983. But the fact that the 5th Earl acquired so promptly a copy of Johnson's pamphlet is indication of his keen interest in political affairs, which was just beginning in this decade when he was in his early 20s. Further indications that the 5th Earl was consciously building up the collection can be found with other examples in Doddsley's bill. Mention is made of the 1743 edition of the Duke of Newcastle's widely read work, A General System of Horsemanship. The collection and castle had already contained two copies of Newcastle's treatise, and these date from when they were first published nearly a century before. The first English edition of 1667 and the French translation of 1671 were both recorded in the Third Earl's manuscript catalogue. But what distinguished the later 1743 edition was the quality of engraved plates, which are rather eccentric and bizarre in this equivalent of the uh, horse's Elysian fields, uh, together with this extraordinary picture here. (coughs) But apart from the sumptuous double plates, there were uh, intricate headpieces and ornamental initials which had not appeared in any edition before. And it is perhaps hardly surprising that within a decade of the 5th Earl's purchase of Newcastle's horsemanship, the stables at Castle Howard were built to the designs of the architect John Carr. But the 5th Earl was not only buying sumptuous and expensive books... Another sign of continuation with earlier sections of the library can be seen with his purchase of Pierre de Mezo's biography of the 17th century Puritan theologian William Chillingworth, an historical and critical account of the life and writings of William Chillingworth. This was the earliest and for a long time the best account of Chillingworth, and it complements nicely the theological material gathered a century earlier at Castle Hard, which had included works by Chillingworth himself. One could spend considerable time and energy digesting fully all the information in Dodsley's bill. But already it is apparent from the few books considered that the fifth Earl was neither narrow-minded or indiscriminate in his book buying. He saw fit to purchase contemporary books as well as volumes that would enhance the existing collection. Not only was he a discerning buyer, he was a regular one too. The Account books for the year 1777 to 1822 record frequent purchases from a variety of booksellers. But aside from these, examples, no, these two examples of the itemised bills, no other itemised bills remain. We know also that the 5th Earl sent a number of his books to the binder John Polworth, who had at one time been head finisher at King George III's bindery at Buckingham House. The 5th Earl's political life took him to America in 1778 as chief of the commissioners appointed by the prime minister, Lord North, and sent to hold talks with the colonists. The mission was a failure since Carlyle's powers were not extensive enough to deal with the American demands. Horace Walpole commented on the episode remarking on the 5th Earl as someone, quote, very fit to make a treaty that will not be made. The 5th Earl and Walpole were in fact acquainted In 1781, not long after his return from America, Walpole gave the fifth Earl an inscribed copy of his play, The Mysterious Mother, a tragedy, signing himself with his title, The Earl of Orford. It is possible that Walpole's drama influenced the fifth Earl, who only two years later wrote The Father's Revenge, a tragedy. This is a dark play about the agonies of love and family loyalty, together with passionate revenge and murder. And this is one of the engravings, uh, one of four engravings taken from paintings by the artist Richard Westall, illustrating a suitably sombre and grim moment in this Gothic drama. Well, it's known that Dr. Johnson read and commended the father's revenge, but the fifth earl was to suffer at the hands of an altogether more fiery literary critic, who was also a distant member of the family. In 1798, the fifth earl was appointed guardian to his first cousin once removed. This was none other than the great romantic poet, Lord Byron. The fifth earl's mother, Isabella Byron, was sister to Byron's grandfather, and her portrait by Gainsborough still hangs at Castle Howard today. Relations between the two men were never very cordial, although in 1808 Byron did dedicate the second edition of his early volume of verses, Hours of Idleness, to the fifth earl. But the fifth earl earned Byron's enmity the following year by refusing to introduce him to the House of Lords. Before Byron could take his seat as a peer, he had to provide proofs of his birth and ancestry, and he hoped that his guardian would use his influence and intervene on his behalf. It does seem that Byron was mistaken in assuming the fifth earl was in a position to smooth his entry into the House of Lords. And when such help was refused, Byron attacked him virulently in verse. Hitherto Byron had always been complimentary about the Fifth Earl's poetic and dramatic works. And at this time, Byron was working on his poem English Bards and Scotch Reviewers. And initially, he had included a generous couplet on the Fifth Earl that reads: On one alone, Apollo deigns to smile and crowns a new Ross Common in Carlisle. But once the quarrel had flared up between the two men, Byron altered the couplet. No muse will cheer with renovating smile, the paralytic puling of Carlyle. <laughs> and worse was to follow, as Byron concludes of his guardian, Whose hairs grow hoary as his rhymes grow worse? What heterogeneous honours deck the peer? Lord, rhymester, pity-maetre, and pamphleteer, so dull in youth, 14, Byron did insert some conciliatory lines in Canto 3 of Child Harold. It will come as no surprise that there is no copy nor trace of any copy of Byron's English Bards and Scotch Reviewers at Castle Howard. However, there are first editions of several of Byron's other works, including Marino Faliero, Werner, and Child Harold. And there are first editions of the later cantos of Don Juan. As Jerome McGann has observed, the publishing history of Don Juan is complicated. Byron's publisher, John Murray, was anxious when Byron sent him the manuscript of the first two cantos in 1818 that this inflammatory poem might render him liable to prosecution. Consequently, he decided to issue the poem in an expensive quarto edition of a small run, only 1,500 copies, without either Byron's name as author or even his own as publisher. The price of one pound eleven and sixpence was deliberately high in order to ensure a circulation limited in both numbers and social class. However, there is no copy of this deluxe quarto edition at Castle Hard, and again, nor is there any record of there ever having been one. Murray's move failed in one significant way. It opened the market for a flood of cheap pirate editions of Cantos 1 and 2, Thus, by the time he came to publish Cantos 3, 4, and 5 in 1821, Murray decided to return to an octavo format, more reasonably priced at nine and sixpence. He continued this format for the following installments of the poem, although in all these instances he still managed to keep both his and Byron's name off the title page. The later volumes in their blue-gray paper boards and white paper labels are still at Castle Howard, and there is also a calf bound edition of Don Juan, but again of only Cantos 3 to 16. There is no copy of Cantos 1 and 2 in either a cheap pirate edition or in the official cheaper edition of 9 and 6pence, which Murray had reluctantly issued in reply to the pirates. What are we to make of this absence, this lacuna in the collection? It would be very easy to say that, for whatever reason, the family simply never acquired a copy of Cantos 1 and 2, at least not until collected editions of Byron's works. But the presence of a calf-bound copy of Don Juan, Cantos 3 to 16, suggests more than simply a failure to acquire on the part of the family. Was the fifth earl morally outraged by the early cantos of Don Juan, or can their absence be explained by a more personal sense of affront stemming from Byron's belligerent lines over a decade earlier. I don't want to make too much of this particular example intriguing as it is, but I do want to use this instance as a way, briefly, of drawing attention, perversely it may seem, to the value of absence in a collection. Lost, missing, stolen, borrowed and never returned, sold or simply not there. Gaps are an important way of evaluating a library. Absence can be as revealing as presence. For With gradual and widespread research, one can assess a collection not just in terms of which books are in the library, but also which titles are not in the collection. A collector's enthusiasms may be fueled or limited for all sorts of reasons. Funds, interest, prejudice, commitment. Hardly any private library aspires to the comprehensiveness of a copyright library. That is why they are so fascinating. They reveal idiosyncrasies and the intriguing endlessness of something incomplete and personal. In this respect, I would argue, the issue of absence in a library may prove to be even more interesting than the presence of certain books themselves. The reasons, if they can be discovered, for not collecting can be as intriguing as the reasons for collecting. And so I have suggested, with regard to the 5th Earl and Byron's Don Dune, where some sort of answer seems to hover beyond a specific absence. But tempting as it is, I cannot spend any more time on the books that are not at Castle Hart, though the subject of the taxonomy of absence merits an entire lecture in itself. I must return to the history of the collection over the last hundred years. Since the time of the fifth earl, the family involvement in politics had grown. After his failed admission to America, the Fifth Earl was appointed Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and so began a family connection with the political affairs of Ireland that was to last over four generations, and ultimately have disastrous consequences for the unity of the family and the library. The Fifth Earl's time in Ireland was brief, only two years, but it appears he was liked and respected by the Irish House of Commons, particularly since he believed that the Irish should be allowed to govern themselves after unrest in the 1790s, Ireland was fully governed by England following Prime Minister William Pitt's Act of Union, which was passed in 1800. Over the next century and a half, opinion in England would be divided between those who felt Ireland should be governed by England and those who favoured Irish self-determination and a full Irish assembly in Dublin. Often whole families would be split over this question, as was to be the case with the Howard family later in the 19th century. The most distinguished record of service in Irish affairs belongs to George William Frederick Howard, the seventh Earl. As a young man, he was chief secretary for Ireland during Lord Melbourne's administration. Lord Melbourne's wife it was, Lady Caroline Lamb, who had run off with Byron. The family connection did not seem to affect the seventh Earl's political career. The Seventh Earl held this post for six years, and during this period in the 1830s, he steered a considerable amount of legislation through the House of Commons. In 1855, he was appointed Lord Lieutenant of Ireland by Lord Palmerston, a post he occupied for nearly a decade. And It is from this period that the considerable influx of Irish material in the library at Castle Howard dates. He gathered a large number of books, papers, and manuscripts relating to Irish history and politics. Perhaps the oddest item in this collection is a photograph album presented to the 7th Earl in 1857 by John Lentain, governor of Mountjoy Prison, Dublin. This bizarre and unique album contains 110 photographs of convicts arranged in pairs on each page. Lentain, in fact, was one of the earliest people to pioneer the use of photography in criminal identification. So not only is this an early book in criminal um, classification, if you like, it was also one of the earliest, I think, photographic albums per se. Considerable care has been taken in the compilation of this album. Tooled leather binding, carefully trimmed photographs, and a neat handwritten title page, complete with classical quotation. The epigraph comes from the Roman poet Horace, and the Latin translates, No one is so savage that they cannot be tamed. Accompanying the album is a small notebook, more hurriedly written, giving the names and background to each of the convicts. Again, there is a classical quotation, this time from the Roman satirist Juvenal. The quotation echoes the line from Horace with its possibilities of reforming a character, and the Latin translates as, no one hits bottom at once. The album is both a fascinating and a dismal comment on Irish history. And it sits alongside the Seventh Earl's copious diaries for these years which reveal his industrious commitment to Irish affairs. What exactly he made of this gift from the prison governor, we do not know, but it would be wrong to see him as a harsh official in favour of all the severities of the penal system. Like his father and his grandfather before him, the Seventh Earl was popular with the Irish, especially through his efforts to improve agriculture and manufacturing in the land. And in 1870, after his death, a statue of him was erected by public subscription in Phoenix Park, Dublin. And like his grandfather, the seventh Earl visited America, too. On his first visit in the 1840s, he met the great American historian William Hickling Prescott. and Both men were to remain long and close friends. There are copies of all of Prescott's major works at Castle Howard. And later in the 1860s, before his death, the 7th Earl was presented with a specially bound set of Frank Moore's The Rebellion Record by the citizens of New York. Today, this handsome set lives in the library in the private wing at Castle Howard. These years witness a great expansion in the library. This is partly on account of the increased political activity in the family, and this is evidenced in the increase of books on history, politics, economics, and science several of which were dedicated to the earls of Carlisle. But these years also see a build-up in the area of natural history, especially in ornithological books. And a further influx of theology is due to the fact that the eighth earl was a rector. Could I have the next drum, please? Thank you. The most important event during this period is the bequest of this man, Sir David Dundas, sketched here by the 9th Earl, who in 1879 left his large and important collection to the 7th Earl's brother, Charles Wentworth Howard. Dundas was a bibliophile, and his collection contained a great many catalogues of other libraries, as well as various incunables and a rich selection of English Civil War material. But little did anyone suspect that within half a century, the library at Castle Howard was to be divided. Although the closing years of the 19th century saw the peak of the collection in quantity, variety and quality of material, these years also saw a schism in the family during the time of the 9th Earl. In 1865, William Gladstone, Prime Minister of England, introduced his bill for Home Rule for Ireland. He proposed that after many troubled years under English rule, Ireland be allowed more or less to govern itself. George Howard, 9th Earl of Carlisle, opposed this measure, as did his sons. His wife, on the other hand, Rosalind Howard, Countess of Carlisle, was in favour of Gladstone's bill. Both husband and wife held strong political convictions, and the result of their disagreement was so great that the two sides of the family virtually lived apart. Divided between Castle Howard in Yorkshire and the old, old family seat of Nowth Castle in Cumbria. The result of this affair meant that Castle Howard ceased to be the sole focal point for the family. Life continued in more than one establishment. The ninth Earl died in 1911 and Rosalind, his wife, ten years later. According to the provisions of their wills, primogeniture was not observed and the huge family estates were divided equally among their remaining sons and daughters. Amongst other things, the library too was divided between the two principal homes, Castle Howard and Nowarth Castle. Henceforth, it would never be possible to talk about the library at Castle Howard in the same singular way. There are, fortunately, records of most of the books and which was sent where, but it is my slow task to attempt to reconstruct on paper historically... The library went at its peak at the turn of the century. And on top of this difficulty, it should be borne in mind that the middle years of the 20th century were not kind. During the Second World War, two sons were killed, and a disastrous fire in 1940 destroyed a large part of the building, as well as many treasures inside the house. In the late 1940s, the trustees, fully believing that Castle Howard would never be lived in by the family again, began auctioning some of its contents. Dispersed by these sales were nearly 1,000 of the choicest and rarest books in the collection. However, the trustees reckoned without the energy of this man, George Howard, the surviving son. On his return from the war, he decided that the house should be lived in once more. Furthermore, he determined that this damaged architectural masterpiece would be restored, and it is largely thanks to his remarkable efforts that Castle Howard is today home to the family and enjoys such enormous popularity with the public. As time and money permit, the gradual task of restoring some of the burnt-out rooms continues, and in the last decade, a new library has been built. George Howard was created Lord Howard of Henderskelf, a life peerage, on his retirement from the governorship of the BBC in 1984 and it was during this period that he began planning the Great Treasure Houses Exhibition for Washington. Lord Howard lived just long enough to see this room completed and filled with books, among them one of his finest purchases, a private press, limited edition of Captain Cook's Florilegium. This sumptuous, and I might add, enormously heavy volume, is one of only ten ever produced, and is the pride of the new library. And so to summarize, the history of the collection at Castle Howard is a record of the changes and continuities of taste in one family, as well as a register of wider cultural issues during various eras, eras. whether in the case of the architectural and theological interests of the third earl, or the complicated relationship with Byron in the case of the fifth earl, or the political interests of the seventh earl together with the family involvement with Ireland through until the time of the ninth Earl. These are the areas I have dealt with, but I might just as easily have focused upon the 4th Earl and his passion for collecting sculpture and painting, or even the ninth Earl and his friendship with many important artists and writers of the late 19th century. One might choose almost any individual or any period and begin to work into the collection along a particular line and after research, a compelling social history would emerge. Tonight, I've tried to show some examples of who collected what books and why, though, of course, I've only been able here to scratch the surface. Without doubt, the collection at Castle Howard has suffered in the course of this century, but a great library can withstand such losses, especially when records and documentation remain. The collection at Castle Howard today is not something inert or fossilised, It it offers enormous possibilities for research, inquiry and communication. Thank you.